Hello, and welcome to Lots Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that when Radio Times first started carrying ITV listings, they signposted the change with a full-page photo of Bob Cryer from the bill and the caption, Bob Cryer and Radio Times, what's going on? I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that they remember that no one has ever seemed to are writers and podcasters Lisa Parker and Andrew Trowbridge. Lisa, Andrew, what you're to where can we find it? We've just recently released a podcast, which is all about the BBC. What has the BBC ever done for us? We, we should say that's part of our series round the archives. Yes, yes. We say that. Which Tim has appeared on many times. Yeah. And we've just got the exciting news that we somehow ended up with a bit of a spin-off show, haven't we? Yes, we have a K9 and company, don't we? Yeah, to our to our Doctor Who. Our friends Andy and Martin have just released a UK TV podcast all about drama, mm-hmm. which is sort of a result of their working on our show so yes. it's all very exciting today it is right well hoping that your first choice is just as exciting as any of that news i'm going to explain in a minute why i was quite surprised when i started looking into this but let's hear a bit of the witty zingy dialogue and then we'll talk about it sally you want to wake up the whole house <laughs> who's there who's that there your mother never told you it's rude to turn your back on a person I don't know who you are. Are you a neighbour? Who let you in? Who let me in? I live here. It's my house. That's better. Now I can see you I'm frightening. <laughs> You're a pretty girl, Sally. You shouldn't be so shy. I'm going to switch the light on, then you'll disappear. Switch, switch. Liberty Hall. <laughs> oh. Believe me, it gets creepier. I don't know about you, but I'm laughing already. That was a bit from So Haunt Me, which I thought was only on the BBC in 1992. But Lisa, what was the actual story here? The story of the series is that a family have to downsize because the father's lost his his job in an advertising agency. So they move into a smaller, slightly decrepit house, which has had many owners because it's haunted by a Jewish ghost played by Miriam Carlin. I'm not really sure why this isn't remembered more because she she was quite a sort of well-known actress. It doesn't seem to be sort of widely remembered, but I think the reason I remember it is because it's got David Graham in it and that's possibly the, the, the main thing for me. I'm not surprised it's not well remembered purely because, as I say, I thought there was only one series of it. I remember being quite badly received. And I didn't ever notice it again after that. And apparently there were three series and a Christmas special. I was stunned by that. I thought it was just something that came and went like a lot of early 90s sitcoms that didn't really catch on. But it seems like if this wasn't popular with viewers, it must have been popular with somebody behind a desk somewhere. But it wouldn't have got that far on just somebody being keen on it, boosting their CV. So do you remember it more fondly? I remember enjoying the performances. And looking back at it, it, it's a bit weird because watching it this time I couldn't decide who my sympathy should lie with the character played by Miriam Carlin Yetta Feldman is very annoying but in some ways you still feel sorry for her because all she really wants is to see her daughter and and maybe to have a sort of a friend a family it's written by Paul A. Mendelssohn who seems to be quite hot property at this time because he's also got May to December yes running there's actually an occasion on the Sunday the 8th of March where he's got May to December on then you've got Love Joy in the middle and then So Haunt Me's on so it's like a Paul A. Mendelssohn sandwich I thought you were going to say for a second that there's some crossover between the programme
sounds like it's an expanded universe thing going on with you know, Anton Roger saying, I thought I saw a very fussy woman, but sadly not. Yeah, because it's a cinema verity production. It is, isn't yeah, it's it? Verity Lambert. So, yeah. And yeah. Le- later on, Paul Mendelssohn does come up with My Hero. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also in the cast, I mean, not just Miriam Carlin, there's George Costigan, who was still very well known at that point for being in Rita Sue and Bob 2, but also Tessa Peake Jones, who was, you know, the other half of TV's Del Boy. Obviously, she was Raquel for years and years, so it's going to be interesting on the back of that, but it doesn't seem to really take it off. It seems to be moderately successful for a while, and then came and went. I mean, she actually gets, if you watch an episode, she gets what I always think is the sort of more sort of prestigious credit. She gets it's the end credit at the end. It's almost like it was a sort of vehicle for her in some way. Because who's Miriam Carlin's daughter played by? Uh, Julia Deakin, because obviously who would go on to be in space. And Trevor Byfield, who plays her husband, who I always remember being credited as Ziggy Byfield in certain things later on, which is odd. I'm always fascinated by how they determine the and and featuring and with things and who gets what. No, I have wondered, is it just people have their different conventions which one they use? But if you watch a Avengers Endgame. In the end credits, there are about a dozen ands, a dozen widths, a dozen featurings. How do they work all that out? I sort of want to know and don't want to know at the same time. I'd like to preserve that mystery, but they only have one in this, did they? I guess it's whose agent has got the most clout, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And who's the best known at the time? Yeah. I quite like the setup for this show, in that some of the characters can see her, yes. some of the characters can hear her, yeah. and some of the characters aren't aware of her at all. So <laughs> that's where the comedy comes yeah. from, isn't Also, it? I didn't realise that the actress that plays the daughter in it would go on to play the spectacularly unlucky Kylie Barnaby in Miss Summer it's quite interesting as well that around this time, I mean, we talk quite often on Looks Unfamiliar about there have been lots and lots of shows that have attempted to do the mischievous phantom for kids, Nobody's House, Rent a Ghost, Go to Motley Hall and so on. But every so often they do one for adults. I mean, there were things like there were the Topper films in, was that the 40s? Obviously, Randall Hopkins deceased. There have been a number of attempts over the years, but they're sort of out on a limb, out on their own. There's not a craze for them. But around this time, BBC One were trying to do a few you kind of supernatural things in comedy and comedy drama. And I have pondered genuinely whether this was to do with the, you know, the absence of Doctor Who and everything that came in its wake around that time. But even just off the top of my head, around the same time that So Haunt Me first appeared, you've got Moon and Son. Everyone forgets this now, the Millicent Martin series. She's possibly a fraud psychic and her son's possibly a real psychic. There was Mulberry, which is a very weird sitcom with Carl Howman, where I think he was supposed to claim an old lady's son soul but he liked her too much so he stayed in the reality plane or whatever looking after her there were other examples as well and it's odd that you got that little batch of them all at once i didn't wonder what was going on virtual murder which you mentioned on your previous appearance will probably probably fall in with that too and was on roughly at the same time as well it seems in the second and third series it seems to be more concentrating on now that the whole thing with their daughter's been resolved that they just want to get out of the house and move to a different house so they need to make enough money that just seems to be about sort of job woes and that kind of thing so i have to say the dogs are very good actors. yeah the dogs are really good actors. <laughs> i mean you don't know what they're holding up to make it look at stuff no but i've never seen a better acting dog no, no. no it's very good okay well we're jumping back from andrew's video recorder to his zx spectrum for your next choice now once again i always get complaints no matter how low i make the volume when i put computer game sounds in so just dip the volume for about three seconds if you're one of those people but here's some noises from the game and we'll find out what it is in a minute <laughs> 
Okay, some very ominous and formal blips and bleeps there. Andrew, what was Stonkers? Stonkers was, well, I suppose technically you can call it a real-time strategy game in that you're moving things about on a map. But I think it's a sort of quarter-speed real-time strategy game because it seemed to go on for ages when you played it. It's a game from Imagine Software in 1983. I was very much of the sort of home computer boom generation, so I did have a ZX81. Then going into a spectrum, the fact that everything was in colour was wonderful. The setup here, you've got an army, you're playing against the computer's forces, you're moving infantry, artillery and tank units about and supplying them on a map. The colour schemes are horrible, (laughs) especially when the sort of forces encounter each other. It's one of the few games where I've ever seen they have to resort to yellow and cyan, which were, like, horrible. Nobody (laughs) used cyan on the spectrum. What madness is this? This is the only game which did, yes. It's that thing, you'd get the cassette, and there's a wonderful sort of bit of artwork on the front, including two tanks, a map of the world, and some rather impressive 3D lettering that says stonkers. You sort of play the game and move your bits about the screen very slowly. Apparently it did win well, I don't know whether it was an award or just the title of best war game from Crash Magazine, but I did wonder whether it was like number one in a field of one. I really don't. <laughs> yeah, the, the title of only war game. But as you play this game, you keep getting this sort of ticker tape update, which says you've stonked for 10 minutes or however long. And I just like the idea that a video game becomes a verb. But I've watched a couple of videos back on YouTube and they go on for about 40 minutes. Because you were bored to hell watching yes. this, weren't you, Lisa? I watched I was, about five minutes. I was saying it was really exciting when I played it because the idea that you actually had a map you could move around. I mean, I play computer games now where you've got a whole galaxy to move around in. I just like the fact you can see the evolution of computer games from, you know, the early days of one dot hitting another dot to an actual map, to an actual planet, to an actual galaxy. Soundtrack is nothing to write home about. I agree with you there. Later on, I did have Dune 2 on the Amiga, and you can sort of see a family connection in that you're moving sort of bits and pieces around and they're shooting it at each other. There just seemed to be a number of like tank games around this point. There was a sort of 3D one, which was all done in sort of line vector graphics, and that was meant to be terribly exciting. Imagine Software is the house this comes from and I remember some of their games were really really good and some of them were dull as ditch water I'm still undecided as to where this one falls well I was going to mention exactly that because they are a really interesting case study what was going on in early home computing because my main memory of them was they would make when they first appeared incredibly difficult games and then give them names like stonkers that sounded more action-packed than they were. I mean, the main one I remember, which may have come out at exactly the same time as stonkers, was R. Didums. I don't know if you remember this, but when I describe it to you, you probably get a very different picture in your head of what the gameplay was like. It was about a teddy bear that had to navigate a nursery to get to a crying baby to comfort it, and other jealous toys would try and <laughs> impede its progress. Now, you're probably thinking it sounds quite cartoony, action-packed. It was Bastard difficult. It really, really was. It was one of the hardest games I've ever played. I mean, I liked it, but 
the cover, the title, the short write-up of the gameplay made it sound very different to what it was. And they did that for a number of years. And then, unsurprisingly, they ran into financial difficulties, at which point they were bailed out by Ocean, who were kind of the... They were like the swaggering, sales-conquering giants of ZX Spectrum games that spotted every licensing opportunity available and generally did them quite well and also came up with things like Daily Thompson's Decathlon that were innovative but were fun as well. But when Imagine went to them, their main focus seemed to be converting arcade games that most people probably have thought couldn't be converted for like a pretty rubbishy home computer where everything had to be in Scion. In particular, they did Mikey, which is one of my favourite arcade games. It baffles everyone else. It's a kind of like Brat Pack type thing about a boy collecting in a classroom in America, collecting bits of a message from his girlfriend and he then has to sneak out into the hallway and he has to knock people off desks and so on. Everyone, there's a retro arcade in Liverpool that has a Mikey and I spent hours playing that and everyone I go with is like why are you playing this but they managed to do that for the Spectrum and also Yeehaw Kung Fu the cartoony martial arts thing they somehow managed to do that for the Spectrum and I don't understand how and it was good and it was fun but they also did esoteric things like nobody remembers this there was a game that they called Movie which is like a film noir thing with lots of what would now be called cutscenes and it was a really difficult crime murder mystery to get your head around and then obviously times changed they all went off and went to join other software houses but that whole story to me is quite fascinating really i remember sort of this period and this was very much the time when sort of computer games were credited to just one person i noticed for stonkers it's john gibson i, I don't recognize the name but the idea that just one person would program this whereas of course now you know there's vast sort of fleets of teams that, that are sort of bust in to do all this stuff because i do remember on our sort of local news thing south today i remember somebody doing a report on ant attack um they actually had i think he was fairly young as well the chap that had programmed it and it was this idea that you were a bit of a pop star if you actually programmed a, a computer game that, that sold well well yes because there was matthew smith who did manic minor and jet set willy legend has it he was so uncomfortable with the media attention for writing those two games that he went and worked on a kibbutz in israel to get away <laughs> from it all now you will be lucky if anyone recognised your name from an eight minute credit sequence on a game that you probably had to finish the whole thing to get to. So like you say, <laughs> it's another world where one person took the credit for an entire game. And speaking of games credited to one person, that brings us around neatly to your next choice, where I'm just going to let this advert do the talking. Just last night, I was lost in the jungle with Pitfall Harry, surrounded by giant scorpions and man-eating crocodiles. Well, Harry and I just grabbed the van, swung through the trees and over the carpets and found the jungle treasure it was really neat if you haven't met pitfall harry you're missing the year's most incredible video game adventure pitfall for the atari 2600 and in television since i met pitfall harry no other man will do pitfall designed by david crane for activision Okay, that was an introduction to Pitfall Harry via the advert for Pitfall on the Atari, is it 2600 or 2600? I've never known what it is. But anyway, whatever Atari it was, you can get Pitfall for it. Lisa, I'm assuming you had it. I did. It took me years to work out what it was actually called. It's a game that we used to, because I have nieces and nephews that are quite close to me in age, and we all used to play it. And I can remember the solitary game controller that you got with Atari being passed around from person to person very quickly as you very quickly died by landing in a crocodile's mouth or going in the quicksand or 
falling down the carpet or landing on a snake or all these various things that you could actually get killed by. There are some videos of people playing it on YouTube and I watched it and it's amazing how much you remember all the various little noises. Did you were able to do sort of impressions of the sound effects yes. even before you watched the videos, yeah. weren't you? Yeah. And you were pretty accurate. Yeah, the yeah. swinging across this sort of carpet thing, I think it is. And the noise it made when you landed on the treasure, I always associate with Scrappy-Doo because it's the thing in... in <laughs> Goofy and Scrappy Doo, where he says puppy power, and it goes. Because that advert, you didn't yeah. even know about that until no. we found it about 15 no. minutes ago. We found it a little while ago, and obviously it's got Jack Black in it. Well, I, as far as I recall, I've never seen any of his movies. But I like the implication in the advert that computer games are for old people as well. Yeah, for everybody. Because <laughs> there's a granny with a pith helmet on, yes. isn't there, in the advert. Yeah. And we also found out that there's, there's a spin-off cartoon, which I don't think was ever shown in this country, and it's very, very bad. Yes, inevitably, it was made by Ruby Spears who were kind of the second division to Hanna-Barbera who did all those things like did they do fang face anything that you remember thinking yeah I quite like that not that was brilliant that would be the Ruby Spears thing but they went a bit crazy for this kind of licensing thing in the early 80s because they did the Pac-Man cartoon which if you watch it now is very dodgy because of a way that certain characters address him it sounds very like a word that's completely unacceptable they did Rubik the Amazing Cube. It was a cartoon of a Rubik's Cube. Genuinely. <laughs> and they also did the Mr. T cartoon where for some reason he runs a gymnastics team and they fight crime. Oh god, I think I remember that. Yeah, nobody's ever quite understood what's going on. And he'd come on at the end to deliver a really, really ham-fisted moral on kind of world in action 16mm film. <laughs> it looked like an insert from Sesame Street that somebody deliberately trod on before developing. I don't understand how, quite how it warranted the cartoon, but it's an absolutely massive game. Apparently it's the best-selling video game for, I think, two years solid. And they attribute that to... I mean, it sounds like, on face value, people are just thinking... It's very much like Raiders of the Lost Ark. People are probably thinking, oh, it's just a rip-off of that. But apparently, David Crane, who developed the game, again, you know, one person did an entire game for the Atari, which is quite a long game as well. And quite radical in terms of, apparently, it was the first real proper side-scroller game. He says he had the idea for the basic framework game in 1979, which is, you know, man runs along, there are obstacles, he jumps over them or he doesn't or whatever. And according to him, he just couldn't work out the best way to do it until he saw Raiders Lost Ark and thought ah that's it and it fits together perfectly and obviously it's so well because of Raiders Lost Ark I mean I don't think you can dispute that everything about it is kind of Indiana Jones skewed especially the promotion but it was its own independent thing and that's quite bizarre really it wasn't as much of a cash-in as you'd think yeah I mean I, I remember particularly it was very frustrating I don't have great hand-eye coordination Especially trying to, there's a bit where you have to jump over and land on the crocodiles. There's three in a row. There's three in a row, but you have to land on them, obviously, when their mouth's shut. And it it took me ages to work out the actual rhythm of doing that. There would be a bit where you had to jump over with a rattlesnake. Five times out of ten or more, I would land on the snake and go. Yeah, because the frustrating thing about games in those days is that you can't save them as well. That's the really annoying thing. When we watched the advert for it, it then Mm. went into an advert for the E.T. game as well. Oh, God. (laughs) 
had that as well on the on the spectrum, and that probably qualifies as the worst game ever invented. What was wrong with it? Well, it was quite boring because you just had to walk around and collect parts of the spaceship, I think. And also little bits of Hershey bar to keep up E.T.'s energy. And the problem was there were all these sort of pits and things. And if you fell down a pit and you didn't have energy, you couldn't get out. So basically, that was the end of the game because E.T. would die. <laughs> but it wouldn't die immediately. Well, from my point of view, the idea of just throwing E.T. into a pit and leaving him there is my ideal game. But <laughs> apparently the Atari version of that sold so badly that for years this was thought to be an urban myth. They buried all the unsold copies in landfill in the desert somewhere. And everyone thought, you know, that was just a legend and they must have repurposed them or something. But a couple of years ago, they were actually dug up. That actually had happened. And there were photographs out there of these, like, kind of dirt cake DT cartridges. <laughs> I wonder if any of them still work. Or maybe somebody, like, just got so fed up of, like, him falling in that pit continuously that thought, I'll show you. I'll buy every copy of it and chuck them in the actual pit. I mean, it is possible, actually, now you've said that, that I, ha- I had it on the Atari rather than the Spectrum, because I had a Spectrum much later. Mm. Out of the two games, Pitfall was definitely the better one. It was much more fun, and, and even if it was frustrating when you kept dying and things. <laughs> well, I'm quite impressed by, it sounds like there was lots of variance in it, just in the fact that you're saying there was a bit where you had to jump across the three crocodiles... Which shows that there was, you know, there were different stages to it. Because I often found, particularly with licensed tie-in games, that they would do the same thing again and again. I mean, the one that really stays with me is Bruce Lee on the Spectrum. It's a platform game. The first room is absolutely brilliant because you got to collect, I think they're sort of lanterns, but you got to get them while a ninja and a sort of sumo called the Green Yarmo uh, chasing after you. Then it just does the same thing, level after level after level. It never changes. <laughs> okay, well, probably much like Pitfall Harry himself, in one part of Pitfall. I was just saying it's Pitfall exclamation mark as well. That makes all the difference. I've got myself into a jam I can't get out of because I cannot think of a way of getting from this into your next choice. I'm sure I thought there was a way where they came up with the running order, but it's defeated me now. So let's hear these characters in action. <laughs> Okay, that was the cleanest little piggy in the market by Shag Connors and the Carrot Crunchers. Andrew, why are you bringing this music into my life? <laughs> Well, the thing is, you know an awful lot about pop music, and a lot of our friends do as well. But I think Lisa and I have something in common, and mm-hmm. that we never bought a normal record in our lives. Because <laughs> I, I had a record player, and there was just nowhere to buy records sort of within the radius of about 10 miles. A trip to Salisbury was like virtually a day out for us, and sort of going into Smith's or something like that. And I, I just never felt qualified to buy sensible records because I, I didn't know what was cool and what wasn't. The album I've got in my hand here is Furzlin with Shag Connors and the Carrot Crunchers, which claims to be West Country humour at its funniest. One pound twenty-five from W. H. Smith. This is a genre of music known as scrumpy and western. You've probably heard of the Wurzels. You might have heard of the Yetis. 
I defy you to have heard of the of Shag Corners and the Carrot Crunchers, however. These are some fellows from Gloucester, which, again, is fairly exotic when you live in, <laughs> in Dorset. But the reason he's called Shag Connors, and I shall read the description from the back of the album, he was found drunk, sleeping with his head resting on a manure heap, which caused a tobacco-like hair to grow on the sides of his face. Shortage of cigarettes on the farm caused him to try some, some in a roll-up. Very strong, but good. Now everybody smokes it in the village. They all know I grow me own tobacco, so they call me Shag. What? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just quoting what it says on the back. I'm very much of the opinion that there should be such a thing as, like, yokel pride. You'd get something like the Wurzels appearing on sort of Cheggers Plays Pop or Mm. something like that, and they were always very much seen as the sort of joke act, weren't they? But to me, all this sort of music from the country was much closer to my heart than any sort of urban sort of decay type thing. So, yeah, they do make a few appearances on the Will Tappers and Shunters show in the Sooty show. Of course. To both of them, of course. Yes. I'm not surprised in the slightest. And they did team up with Luann Peters once for a single called It's Me, Margaret. I've never heard it, but I don't <laughs> know. There's an album, Country Capers, which features a song about Nelly from Paul. Given that we live in Paul, I've never met Nelly, but hey. <laughs> well, I had to look through their discography, and I noticed a couple of interesting things. One is that the album you mentioned, Furslin, I think it's from 1970. It was on Pi's budget label, Marble Arch. But it's got two songs on it that really caught my attention. Well, three, actually. There's Au Pair Girl, which I, I don't know if I want to hear, <laughs> to be honest with you. There's I'm Jealous of the Farmyard Cockerel, but it sounds like something Doc Cox would have done, as I have a big one. But there's also Blame the Breathalyzer, which I'm guessing has aged very badly. See if I can remember some of the lyrics of that a minute. I'm jealous of the Farmyard Cockerel with his many, many wives. You can't get drunk on lemonade, so blame the breathalyzer or something like that. We have got the album, but we've got nothing to play it on and (laughs) haven't had anything to play it on for about 20 years. And yes, I have searched for sort of rips of it on YouTube and nobody's ever been brave enough to put the whole album on there. Well, the other albums, this is a really interesting thing to notice. Like you say, he's built a Shag Connors on Furslin on a little of what you fancy which is on EMI's budget label, Starline, in 1973, which means it was probably sharing rack space with Relics by Pink Floyd. On that, he's built a shag Connor, and I should also point out, the cover of that has got that real kind of, there's a kind of design from the 70s that just screams no to me. It just seems completely wrong. It's like, you know, when you find the Ken Dodd's Diddy Men annual, and something about the tinting of the photograph the colours and the font just make you think, there's something inexplicably sinister about this I can't put my finger on. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the visual equivalent of a public information film. But then on Country Capers, which is released by, I'll be careful I say this, Sweet Folk and Country, catalogue yeah. number SFA064, 1976, he shagged Connor apostrophe S. <laughs> what was he actually called? Good question. I've looked them up on scrumpyandwestern.co.uk. Yes. <laughs> I bet you never knew such a site existed. I like, do now. I found it today, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it, his son is Martin Scarecrow Connor, singular. 
So I really don't know. Going down a generation, they seem to have lost the S. And there's some bits on that site where it spells it C-O-N-N-E-R. What is happening? I have no idea. Maybe I should just say that maybe literacy in the West Country is not sort of not the best. And I'm allowed to say that and you're not. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm not going to add anything to that. But what I am quite impressed by on the Scrumpy Western website, I mean, I assumed it would just be, like you said, them, the Wurzels and the Yetis. But it seems to encompass everything. Like, you know, like there was a thing for cowpunk bands in the 80s where... it was the sort of thing John Peel would play, but with a more country and western tinge to it. You know, there's all kinds of... They seem to have a really broad scope. And I'm quite impressed with that. It's not just somebody having a laugh. It's somebody who genuinely likes that element of music. This is a whole subculture, because, you know, you, as, as you say, this is meant to be about stuff that I remember that nobody else does. <laughs> and I think this is really, really true in this case. But, yeah, it is quite fun just to see... Because I'm, I'm very much sort of on the side of sort of people just doing something because they can. I love amateur podcasts over professional ones. I think some of the most interesting work is done there. And I think that that's true to some extent in in this sort of music. Because I've taken you to sort of, um, sort of Yeti's sort of concerts and things like yes. that and they are really good fun yes. to attend and they're very popular as well yeah they're always uh, very sort of well well attended yeah because I think you were possibly a bit dubious weren't you Why, to start with yeah, yeah. but yeah. It, it, it's that thing of we're not huge stars you know we'll come over and talk to you we'll have a pint and and I just like that friendliness of it. There's no big egos there, which can put me off some, some more professional people, shall we say. Well, yeah, you do get all these people that have had very long careers without ever really being known to the public. And that, I think that's because, as you say, they do what they want to do because they can. And that finds an audience. There are always people, often it's not enough people, but there are always people who are going to want to listen to or read or watch or whatever it is. Like I say, sometimes like these guys, you can keep going for decades almost completely under the radar you did mention the baron knights some time ago on this didn't you but if you were to look at my record collection such Mm. as it is it would be shag connors the yetis the baron knights the bucket of water song and we got copied into a conversation with mike bat where i learned about a connection between the Wombles and the Glums the other oh, day. Oh, yes! But, yeah, I saw that, yes. And that that, that was down to you. I, I didn't expect Mike back to be tweeting us. It's very strange. <laughs> so so there, there's somebody who's happy to talk to anybody, I think. So that's the attitude I like. And again, he's had quite the career without really being a household name. Obviously, you know, he was behind the Wombles, he's behind a number of sort of successful pop singles, but he did other things. Like, the things I know him most for was he did a very early Moog album under the name Synthesonic Sounds, where he did a couple of things like the theme to Superfly. Also, he wrote the original Swap Shop theme. Oh, that's right, yes. And yeah. the theme from the now almost completely non-extant Noel Edmonds' Lucky Numbers, <laughs> which is a just pre... You can't really say pre-fame, because it's been on Radio 1 since 1970, but it's just pre-big Noel Edmonds thing. It was when he was still presenting Come Dancing and so on, and he did this children's show. I think it might have been just prior to Swap Shop. You know, like Mike Bat did all this interesting stuff, and he isn't somebody you'd think of first when you think in the history of pop music really. I have noticed as well, have you ever seen they did the Bristol City Songs EP where the release date is question mark and there's no label credited <laughs> for it, where the tracks are one Bristol City, there'll always be a Bristol, glory glory Bristol City and when the red red robin brackets Bristol City. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I love the fact that at the end I just thought, do you know what? This joke's gone on long enough. Let's just be ridiculous. I remember a few years ago, there was great excitement when some footage of Edge Cutler and the Wurzels was mm. discovered in like Bristol City Centre. But I, I honestly don't think if a load of footage turned up of, of the carrot crunchers, there'd be quite that audience for it. But, uh... <laughs> well, yes, I remember being quite excited when I think it was HTV put up a local news feature which turned out to include Sidam, the female Welsh folk psychedelic band. And I was like, it, it, some footage of them has turned up. And I was basically saying it to everyone I knew who was saying, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, yeah. There you go. There's something else that kind of fits that criteria. <laughs> okay, well, again, I've got no real way of moving from these guys onto your next choice. And I've not got anything I can use as a clip. So I've employed a bit of subterfuge here so see if you can spot before i give away with a terrible joke what i've actually done That was Three Sisters by The Divine Comedy from their brilliant, it's technically not the debut album, but I call it the debut album, Liberation from 1993. Three Sisters, if you played that twice in a row, you would have six sisters, because Lisa, this is the Six Sisters books by Marion Chesney. Who I didn't realise to relatively recently, till I actually got the books, um, is MC Beaton, who wrote the Agatha Raisin books, which I've never actually read. This is something I read when I was a sort of teenager, I guess, or maybe sort of 11 or 12. And I remember really enjoying them. And I Coming back to them when I was an adult, I took a slightly different view, because she wrote a whole section of books that are set in Jordan and Regency England. And these are historical love. That's not right. Romance. Romances, that's the word. These are historical romances. So the whole story of the book is you've got your heroine and she meets somebody and she sort of likes him and then something happens to stop them getting together and then they get together at the end and then they get married and they live happily ever after. It's not really the best sort of motivation for a, a sort of woman now because, you know, there is obviously more to life now than just getting married. But at that point, that was the best thing you could do to make your life better. That was the only thing you could do to make your life better because it was a man's world. And also, when you married, if you came into the marriage with a fortune, that immediately became your husband. So you were left with nothing. Once you were married, that was it. You couldn't get away from your husband because you would be left with nothing. But that's sort of by the by. But yeah, so this is a series of six books about six sisters, obviously, as the title suggests. And they're various romantic adventures how they met their husbands and the adventures along the way i've only reread the first book in the series leading up to this some of it's quite unsettling because there's a whole side plot in the first book which is called minerva which is the eldest sister there's a group of two men dandies or whatever who are annoyed by something she says to them so they make a bet as to who can basically rape her first 
list and what prize they get if they do this. And obviously that doesn't happen because it, it's a When romance. did you read these books? What age? Uh, well, obviously, when I was about 12 or 13, I guess, but that wouldn't have occurred to me at the time. I wouldn't have seen it like that. But mm. reading it now, I'm like, okay, that's a bit dodgy. And also you get one of these characters who features through not quite all of the rest of the books, but he pops up as the sort of villain behind various schemes against the rest of the sisters in the rest of the series of the books. Because when you described them to me, my first thought was a sort of historical Mills and Boone thing. Yeah, same here, yeah. It is, but then reading it again, it's deeper than that. These bits of history that people wouldn't necessarily know about the powerlessness of women at that time. You you, you used the word chattel, didn't you? Yes, chattel. They became their husband's chattels. Everything they had became their husband's. And that law wasn't changed until relatively recently really it was i think it was in queen victoria's time you know it's astonishingly recently that you know you the woman was a slave really for a husband and the books are all from the early 80s as well which surprised yeah. me because when i first read the description of them i assumed they were from the 30s or 40s but no and the other thing i wondered was given that there's six of them and they all appear to pursue different paths in life because i mean later on you got frederica in fashion diana the huntress and so on do you think they were inspired by the Mitford sisters. Does one of them go off and start fancying Hitler? Does that happen? No, I mean, obviously, the whole set is set during the Regency period, which is a very short period of time. It's something like 1811 to 1820. Yeah, I mean, the actual last one, Frederica in Fashion, she's described in it as a bit plain and a little bit, not frumpy, but she's had, she's had some sort of illness in the book, it's described as having washed her out and she's got no character. And But sometimes when she smiles, she's really pretty. But and you're thinking, OK, this is written by a woman and it's describing the character like that. But she goes on to marry a duke. So she does all right out of it. So, so are they intended as like characters female readers should aspire to? I don't know, because obviously you shouldn't just aspire to get married. You should inspire to have your own life and have a career if that's what you want. Obviously, Marion Chesney, as was, because that was her maiden name, and then she became Mrs. Beaton, not that one, and she wrote under that name. So, yeah, it, I don't know. I've never quite worked out what they're actually meant to do. They're just books. But then there's some great sort of little historical nuggets in there. There's, like, there's in one of them, the sister's father is a, he's a vicar, a country rector, and he's a bit of a, he likes to hunt, and he spends all his money on horses and all that sort of thing, which is why they need to get married, because he's, he's got no money. And he and the local squire go off in one of the books and dig up there's an old lady that's basically starved to death and the villagers think she's committed suicide so they bury it at a crossroads with a stake or a heart to stop her from from walking and they basically go and dig her up and bury her somewhere else because obviously they know she didn't commit suicide this is something they did to stop the dead walking so you get little historical bits of information in there as you well. used to read some dark stuff I know <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't actually read like that but looking back at it now you're like Okay, yeah, that's that is a bit dark. <laughs> Well, it is interesting, like you say, that these aren't very well remembered. Because one thing I noticed was Marion Chesney, who kept writing right into her 80s, wrote hundreds of books. I say created Agatha Raisin, Hamish Macbeth, and so on. She's got a very short Wikipedia page. Both of those characters have got a very short Wikipedia page. There is nothing for the Six Sisters, nothing for the, apparently, A House for the Season series or The School for Manners. All these things that she's listed as the creator of 
they're not considered worthy of any detail online. And yet, in their time, they sold extremely... When I say in their time, you know, it's all quite recent, but they sold extremely well. It's a bit like how... When was the last time you saw a Tom Sharp novel in a charity shop? There used to be entire shelves full of them. It is odd how these bestsellers kind of fall off the radar a bit. It's also something recently about William Wharton's books were out of print until recently. Every sort of pseudo-intellectual young adult had them in the 80s, you know. The House for a Season ones, I've, I got those as well, just to sort of compare and contrast. And they're almost exactly the same. That They're set in this, this house that's rented out to somebody for the London season. Mm. It actually features the servants as the main characters in some ways. Yeah. So it sort of predates Downton Abbey by about sort of 25, 30 years. And you've got this sort of butler who's called Rainbird, who used to be a clown in a circus. This is various odd characters, but they're all trapped in this house because they've all got slightly dodgy pasts. So they can't get jobs elsewhere. But each one of those, you then get the story of whichever young lady it is and her attempts to find a rich husband. So it's basically the same format, but with different characters. What was the name of the character in Little Britain who was the novelist? Oh, I can't remember. It was their Barbara Cartland yeah. type thing. And it did sort of go through my head a bit. You know, how, <laughs> how many words, darling? You know, 27. I can assure you, I have read Barbara Cartland books as well, and they are very different. Yeah. <laughs> They're very easy to read, but yeah, they're utter fluff. But then again, they, they do follow the same kind of story. You yeah. have a girl, she meets somebody who she likes, they get separated, there's a villain, he rescues her, they get married. And then there's this whole bit at the end where she just describes the wedding night and what it's like to consummate that and it's all very <laughs> fluffy and yeah it's difficult to explain have you ever heard Barbara Cartland's album sorry I'll repeat it again shall I have you ever heard Barbara Cartland's album that's certainly not in my collection no <laughs> I'm actually quite surprised by that given the stuff you said you used to buy but yeah there was a Barbara Cartland album where basically I think it's called Barbara Cartland's album of love songs I think it's standards like a nightingale sang in Barty Square and the Death at Song, but she doesn't actually sing them. She sort of narrates a romantic monologue. There's a bit where I remember John Walters, the broadcaster, always used to refer to the bit where she said, It's always been a fantasy to be carried off by a sheik. <laughs> no, not shake, a sheik. And then she will just la 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 all these standards while an orchestra plays them. It's one of the best worst albums that's <laughs> ever been. There wasn't a Marion Chesney album, was there? Not that I know of. No, we should do one. I did have the Barbara Cartland book, I think it was of myths and legends, and it was all the sort of... Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, that's sort of, that's you know. better than that. I had the PG Tips' Kevin Tips' book of the unexplained. <laughs> One of the chimps explaining sort of famous mysteries. But uh, this is even better. What was in it? What was what were myths and legends according to her? I think it was like stories of sort of Ariadne in, in the sort of wherever Ariadne was. I can't even remember I'm now. Not you know, Bally Rectory or anything. <laughs> Greek myths and legends. Oh, right. <laughs> Was she around when they happened? Well, she was quite old, so... First-hand eyewitness. We stumbled on some some incredible thing where Barbara Cartland just went into every medium imaginable. (laughs) (laughs) There's a Barbara Cartland video nasty. In fact, I'm going to look up if there was a pre-cert Barbara Cartland video. Zero results of Barbara Cartland on the pre-cert video database. 
<laughs> okay, well, stay in the realm of ridiculous books and ridiculous things attached to them. Moving on to your next choice now. And I have got a clip for this. And it's a clip I was actually absolutely startled by the existence of. So here we go. <laughs> Pour nous faire plaisir, les enfants. Et, et combien ils sont misés 10 francs Ouh 10 francs Voilà, 10 francs Et sur quel chiffre je vais miser euh, Ce que vous voulez Le 4, par exemple Pas pour le 4 Voilà 10 sur le 4 C'est parti J'ai gagné J'ai gagné Okay, that was a clip from the 2009 film Le Petit Nicolas. Andrew, what was that film based on? I was astonished to find that very, very recently it's made it to film and TV. Tim, can I ask, if I said the words chip club to you, would that mean anything? Now, it was a book club at school, in sort of middle school, round about 1979. I think it was like Scholastic Publications or whatever. Used to send out a, I think it was monthly or it might have been quarterly, a, a list of books that you could buy at sort of knockdown prices. The best book I ever got from it was my Monsters of the Movies book. But you sort of felt obliged to buy a book every time there was a newsletter. After a while, you sort of run out of things and just do a stab in the dark. And I came up with The Adventures of Nicholas and the Gang. It took me a while before I realised it was actually an adaptation of a French book. Then I noticed the names at the bottom. Goskini, I presume that's how you pronounce it, and Sempe. Now, Sempe did the drawings, Mm -hmm. but Goskini did the writing. Yes. And you'll know him from... Asterix, or at least Lisa will. I I do. I never read the Asterix books at all. Oh, you miss out. I know I did. It's a sort of humorous book about a kid at school and his gang and their adventures. The chapters only run for about sort of three or four pages, but they're quite fun to read. If you know the sort of Molesworth books, which I'm a big fan of, you can see some sort of connection there. They're written in the sort of late 50s, early 60s. So they're the sort of schools where the kids sit at wooden desks and have inkwells. Even when I was at school in the late 70s, there was still the odd desk like that knocking around. Yeah, I mean, we had inkwells, but yeah, we didn't have ink. Yeah. No, <laughs> we had wells, but no, no ink to you go could in lift them. the lid up of the desk and hide behind it. <laughs> That's right, yeah. And there'd always be some really old anachronistic graffiti on it, like, I hate Biggles or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this is a a translation from the French. Though, if you look at the drawings, there's one where the minister is coming, and he's accompanied by the French police. So although they've changed the, the words into English, they haven't changed the drawings into English drawings, if that makes sense. There's a story where... A kid called Charles, or as they say, Charles, comes over to learn English from France. So I presume that was inverted in the original version of it. All he learns is swear words off of them. And given I I was reading this at about this sort of age of 11, to have a book with the word bloody twice on one page struck me as being really quite punk in terms of my reading. There's also a chapter where they find a cigar and smoke it and then are terribly sick. Again, to me, the kids who smoked, you know, were so far off of my radar because I, I was, I was, you know, the, the good swat. And 
you know, going behind the bike sheds for anything filled me with terror. Uh, <laughs> I guess I might, I most identify with the character of Cuthbert, who's described as a teacher's pet, but we can't hit him as often as we like because he wears glasses. <laughs> Which does beg the question of how often they do hit him, but hey. Reading it back as an adult, there's some very nice throwaway humour at the ends of paragraphs. So they're playing with Cuthbert's chemistry set. We took the biggest bottle and tipped all the powders and liquids into it, and then we got the spirit burner and heated up the bottle. It was okay to start with. The stuff began frothing up, and then there was some very black smoke. The trouble was the smoke didn't smell too good, and it made everything very dirty. When the bottle burst, we had to stop the experiment. And I just love that line at the end, because I remember my chemistry set. And I, rem- I remember my mum being scared of me having one, because she thought I would blow up the house or something like that. I just like the way he's written it, that you just get insights into all the characters, just with one line. There's a line about how his grandma won't throw away her knackered old chair, because it reminds her of grandpa. Or the line uh, about the teacher... Our teacher looks very tired these days. It's just real clever stuff like that. But yes, looking on this now, there were there are half a dozen English books. The whole translation thing of Goskini's French work interests me because in Asterix, mm. the names change, don't they? Do, they do, from country to country. Yeah. And we don't actually have the list here now. But no, yeah, no we, we did look up a list because yeah. you've got the sort of obelix and... Yeah. Get, getafix, getafix and th- things like it's that. It's not called Getafix in other places. It's only called Getafix. Getafix is the druid yeah. in it who makes the potions. Mm. So this whole thing of translating a work to another language is quite interesting. The way jokes sort of have to be structured slightly differently because of the way a language itself works. Mm-hmm. It might have been interesting to have the French version of the book as well. And mm-hmm. perhaps one day I'll try and track them down. But as you say, amazingly, it's just sort of made a bit of a resurgence. But only in France, it seems. No sign of it over here. Because there's a film and an animated TV series, both from 2009. And then Nicholas on Holiday from 2014. So after being in presumably the wilderness for for Mm. decades, I think it just came out because somebody remembered them, basically. Just just like I do. Yeah, they're they're certainly worth a look if you like the Molesworth stuff. And interestingly, I've seen a trailer for a Molesworth thing in the last few days Mm -hmm. with Matt Lucas is involved yeah. with Barbara Cartland in it as well <laughs> Barbara Cartland <laughs> I'm not sure about that <laughs> but yeah there you are Nicholas and the gang 90p it was that was in the days when books cost <laughs> under a pound yes so what else did you get from the chips club so it's chip chip being a chipmunk you think well yeah there was the monsters of the movies book which was based around 1930s horror films sort of little write-ups of the films with lots of good photographs actually mm-hmm. i do wonder about like sort of pushing like x-rated horror 11 year olds i don't know really about that there were diaries you could get as well the chip club diary and those were written by charles brown because he wrote a lot of kids yeah, kids stuff he, he wrote like sort of spy puzzle books and all sorts yeah, of I had a book on stuff. superheroes written by Giles Brandreth yeah because once upon a time Giles Brandreth was, was quite a cool name he was yeah mm. yeah then we saw him then we saw him in his jumpers yeah <laughs> <laughs> 
people have said that the chip club they sometimes remember it but again there's very little information about it online because you'd have the catalogue and then you'd throw it away the next week basically so none of this literature exists and, and in fact this isn't the original copy we had to track down a copy on eBay or Amazon wasn't it because mm-hmm. yeah. my original copy of the book has long since gone walkies the cover is pretty much the same it's just that red and it used to be white that's not all I remember but did you ever get a copy of The Wings of Ecstasy no no Do you know that was by oh no not by the... <laughs> yeah. oh, no. you can get it with a shaft of sunlight i'm sure it would be one of those counts as one choice offers <laughs> <laughs> i'm on that note i'm closing down the book club forever lisa andrew it's been brilliant thank you bye <laughs> Tim Worthington, the story of comedy at BBC Radio 1, from Penny Everett to Chris Morris and beyond. More details, timworthington.org.